Good morning, church. Good morning. morning. Y'all hear me okay? Listen, the uh, last time I was here, I was so blessed by you that uh, I went back to my church, my team, my staff, and I was bragging on y'all for days. (laughs) I was like, I wish I could be here more. So when I come back here, when I say this, I mean it. I'm so thankful to be here to share this word with you this morning. Anyway, that I can to bless Chris, Pastor Zach, and especially Pastor Edwin. However I can help them, this is really a privilege for me and my team. So thank you for having me this morning. It's really good to be here. Would you join me in prayer before we jump into the word? God, we're so thankful. We're so thankful that we get the opportunity to worship you, to experience you. And to hear you speak today to us, God. And to remind us that you're alive, you're real, and you want to connect with us. And so come, Holy Spirit. May your word fall on the good soil of our minds and our hearts as we receive your word today. It's your name, Father, Son, Spirit, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. So I was thinking about what to preach on this coming Sunday. And during the holidays, typically, when we walk around the city and we kind of like look around Brooklyn, everybody's a little bit more cheerful. Everything looks a little bit brighter with the lights and the decorations. And so we feel like we should be celebrating more. But the reality is, for me, I'm kind of what my wife calls a Grinch. Every holiday, I sort of fall into this depression. Instead of celebrating, instead of wanting to be joyful, I kind of get in this lull, this very low moment in my life. And I often struggle with a lot of guilt, some shame, some depression. And so during the holidays, I don't really want to celebrate. It's probably terrible for a pastor to step up here and tell you this, (laughs) particularly around Christmas, right? But I'm just trying to be real. This is where I am. And so I thought I'd preach not just to you, but to myself this morning. Is that cool? All right. Uh, About 12 years ago, there was this Super Bowl commercial that became very, very famous. I don't know if you remember a woman named Betty White. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we do. (laughs) An incredible comedian. She's great. She's hilarious. She's like grandmother of America, basically, right? So in this commercial, uh, you might remember, it was a Snickers bar commercial. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So you all know where I'm going. (laughs) For those of you who haven't heard or seen this commercial, basically Betty White is playing football with a bunch of young 20-year-old men. And the commercial begins by her catching a a pass. And as soon as she catches it, one of these 20-year-olds tackles her into the mud. Now, if you don't know who Betty White is, she's probably like 60, maybe 70-something at this point, with gray, white hair, little old white lady. She gets tackled into the mud, she's covered. And then as soon as she gets up, she runs back into the huddle of her teammates, to which one of the guys turns to her and says, Yo, Mike, what's wrong with you? You're running around like my grandmother. <laughs> and, you know, as Betty White would, she kind of turns and responds in a snarky way. She says, that's not what your girlfriend said to me last night, right? So, like, and everyone's like, whoa, 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 same team, same team, you know? Yeah. And so then Betty White's, like, trying to figure out what's going on, and the guys are like, Yo, man, you need to hustle, run better, you know, do something. And as soon as it's all happening, Betty White's character, her, his girlfriend, runs over and says, baby, baby, eat this. You're hungry. 
And so he bites into the Snickers bar, and suddenly Betty White's character transforms into this young man. And the girlfriend asks, better? And he says, better. And then they continue to play the football game. And the tagline to that commercial is, you're not you when you're hungry. You're not you when you're hungry. And as I'm hearing all this, y'all know. <laughs> There's a real thing called hanger out there, right? When you are hungry, oh my goodness, we make terrible decisions. We are just not ourselves, right? I don't respond that way towards food, but when it comes to coffee, if I don't get my coffee in the morning, I am the worst human being that you will meet. I am so grumpy. It is ridiculous. I'm not me without caffeine. <laughs> but listen, church, I wonder, when we're hungry, we're not us. What about other things? What about other emotions that we carry? What about guilt? What about regret? What about shame? Do those things dictate how we act, think, feel, even look at ourselves? Today, we're going to look at a passage that is going to show us that these feelings do impact us directly in everything that we do and every person that we interact with. It's perhaps one of the most famous passages in the Bible. It's known as the prodigal son or the lost son. I'm only going to preach on half the story <laughs> because I only want us to focus on one portion. And maybe next time I'll come back, I'll finish the other half. But we're going to look at Luke chapter 15, verses 11 24. And this is what it says. I'm going to read it out loud to us. It says, Jesus continued, as Jesus is telling this story, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe salmon and famine, not salmon, severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out Go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Amen. Let me just summarize this story for us. 
So in this context, a father has two sons, an older son and younger son. And even as I'm sharing this, it's pretty common sense, right? Like, you don't get your inheritance unless the person that you're inheriting this thing from is dead. Right? That's just common sense. So for this younger son to ask for his inheritance, he's essentially saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Now, there's also a cultural context here that I wanted to highlight to us. Uh, when it comes to property and land and the ancient Israel culture, your identity, who you were, was actually tied to your land, your property. And it wasn't just you as the head of the household, the father. It was the entire family. Grandparents, aunts, cousins, and not just family, it was also the workers. Servants, everybody was associated to your land. So when people walked by the fields, they're like, this is so-and-so's land. And when you saw the workers, they're like, oh, that person works on this land. So essentially, what's happening is that this son wants to take everything that this family knows and is identified by and have it. On top of that, there was a belief that the land you had particularly in the amount and where it was, was a direct correlation to how much God blessed you as a person, as a family. And so if the son was to take half that land, everybody in the village, in the town, the surrounding neighborhoods would think, the son is taking half of God's blessing away from this family. So what the son is actually doing isn't just impacting the father. What he's really saying is he's saying, I wish all of you were dead. Dad, brother, servants, workers, I don't care about any of y'all. What I care about is what's mine, my birthright. Now, knowing this and how monstrously conceited and selfish this request is, the father still gives the son the request. And what we find is he goes, he parties, he squanders everything, there's an economic downfall, and now he has nothing. And the story tells us that he's so desperate that he has to find work feeding pigs. Now, we might think, that's not bad. Farmers do that every day, right? Where do we get our pork from? Farmers have to do that. But if you look at the context of the passage, it's pretty bad. He can't make a living doing this. And the only reason why he can get this job is because no one else wants to do this work. Because the people who are doing it find it disgusting as well that they would pay him something, scraps, in order for him to actually live. Because no one else would want to do it. And he was a Jew. They thought pigs were unclean. So to actually be around pigs and to feed them was disgusting to him. The passage says that he longed to fill his stomach with the pods of the pigs, the things that the pigs were eating. And in reality, you could actually eat those pods. It's edible to humans without too much consequence. But he couldn't even do that because he was so disgusted by what he was doing. I imagine him dry heaving, gagging as he's trying to feed these pigs. Now I'm, I'm painting this picture for all of you because the passage doesn't actually describe to us what the son is feeling, does it? But I think we can make a couple of guesses just based on this passage what's actually running through this guy's heart. Just looking at this passage, verses 17 and 19, 
It says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. That first thing, he's kind of reminiscing about what he's had, what he's lost. That sounds like regret to me, doesn't it? He regrets something he's done. 18, he says, I'm going to go back to my father and say to him, I've sinned against you. He's now practicing this apology in his head. When you're thinking about apologizing, that sounds like guilt. Finally, he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That word, worthy. Anytime, anytime we feel or we think or we use that word, unworthy, to ourselves, we are casting shame upon ourselves, aren't we? That is shame that we're holding on to. So regret, guilt, and shame. These are the things that the son is dealing with. These are the things that he's carrying. And church, I wonder today for us, my question is, do we even know if we're carrying these things in our heart? Some of us here in this room right now this morning might be carrying these things. And we might not know it. Because the truth is, we've gotten really comfortable living this way. We've gotten really comfortable with trying to hide these things and feeling like if anyone saw what I was like or what I've done, oof, this wouldn't be my community anymore. I share this too because, again, this is something I've lived. Uh, I've, I've gone through years of therapy and in my 20s, I've gone through significant counseling to get through drug addiction and other issues. And there's this constant pattern that comes up with all of my therapists or my counselors and my mentors. And it's this pattern. You can throw that slide up there. It's shame leads to fear, which leads to control. Shame leads to fear, which leads to control. And it's a very simple pattern. Let me explain. When you hold something in your heart that you're embarrassed about, that you feel shame about, it begins to make you feel scared. You're concerned mostly about what other people will think of you if they ever discovered this thing that you're holding and hiding. Right? And then in that fear, you begin to try to create a narrative around your life. You try to control the situation in which you hope people are going to see. You tell the story in which others view you the way you want them to see. But here's the reality. You think you're in control, but you're not. It's actually the fear that's controlling you. It's the fear that actually dictates how you act, how you speak, the way you think, who you ought to be, not you. I have a friend, uh, one of my best friends actually, he got into this phase of getting tattoos all over. And nothing too bad. It's, it was great. Um, we had the honor of having him tattoo uh, our friendship on his arm. There was six guys that we grew up together as kids. We had a rough growing up neighborhood uh, in general, just rough times as kids. Uh, so we we're very close. And so he got a tattoo of six wolves on his arm. You can imagine how big this thing is, right? Like six wolves on his arm. 
uh, he was really proud of this thing. Like, he loved this thing. And for me, as I saw it, I was like, yeah, I'm just so honored that you put us on your arm forever. <laughs> and so anytime it was summer, anytime it was nice, he'd wear a sleeveless or a tank top to show it off. And he should. It was a great tattoo. So one day, I was going to Jersey, which is where he lives, to hang out with him. And we're going out. He picks me up from the bus stop. And... He takes me to the mall in New Jersey, because that's what you do in New Jersey. You go to the mall. And we're like walking around, and we're shopping, and I'm like, why are we here? <laughs> and he's dragging me from like store to store looking for this three-quarter shirt. Uh, I think they call it a baseball shirt. I'm not sure why, but it's, it basically comes three-quarters down to your arm. Now, it's, it's summertime, and I'm thinking to myself, this is weird. You're looking for a three-quarter shirt when you normally would wear like a tank top because it's hot. And as I'm wandering from store to store, I'm like, bro, what's going on? Like, why are you looking for this shirt? Turns out uh, he's meeting his girlfriend's parents for the first time. Or they're having dinner officially as the boyfriend for the first time. They're married now, so it's okay. But in this case, in this moment a few years ago, basically, he didn't want the parents to see his tattoos. Uh, and you have to understand, in, in Asian culture, especially Christian culture, having tattoos is very taboo. It was considered a sin. You're basically uh, not a Christian if you got tattoos. <laughs> and so my boy was so scared of his future in-law's reaction to his tattoos that he was doing everything he could to try to hide them by buying a three-quarter shirt. And he was dragging me along for the ride, and we could have been doing other things, right? Now, I shared this lighthearted story with you because, for my friends, it was just something so simple that he had to hide his tattoo that dictated what he was doing. That fear of rejection, that fear that his parents or future in-laws wouldn't accept him drove him to take me on a three-hour ride to look for this shirt. So church, listen. Something so small and insignificant drove my friend to do that for three hours. If there's something you're holding that's bigger, heavier, more significant, can you imagine the kind of control it actually has over your life and the way it dictates how you are living? This son here in this story, this son is experiencing that. He's trying to control the situation. He doesn't want to go home. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Because something amazing is actually happening. In our passage, it says that he comes to his senses. Right? In the Greek translation, it actually says, he came to himself. Now, that sounds a little weird, but I want you to imagine what I hear or see when I hear that phrase. I imagine sort of like an out-of-body experience. Right? Like, here's the sun, and like his spirit is like over here. And that moment is like when his spirit and his body come together again. He came to himself. It's like he becomes himself again. He's who he was meant to be. 
But the question is, how does he get there? Right? Because this dude is in regret. He's in shame. He's in full of just so much pain and anguish about himself and the decisions he made. How does he suddenly just jump back into being himself? How does he suddenly say, I'm going to go back to my father, when the reality is, it would have been impossible for this guy to go back to his family. Because what he did to his family was basically like murder. There was no way anyone was going to accept him again. So I want us to look at that phrase again. He came to himself. There's really one other place that uses this phrase. And it's found in the book of Acts, chapter 12, verse 17. I'm going to briefly tell you about the story of what happens before we jump into that passage. And we just fast forward from our story to the book of Acts. Jesus has died. He's resurrected. His disciples go. They begin to do an incredible, incredible work. The evangelizing and the gospel is on fire and people are coming to know Jesus. And the king at the time, King Herod, hates it. So he starts killing Christians. He kills James, one of the disciples, and he throws Peter in prison. And so we pick up the story here. Peter is in prison. And as he's in prison, suddenly an angel comes into his cell, releases him from his shackles, breaks those chains, leads Peter out of the prison cell into the streets. And scripture says that the entire time this is happening, Peter has no idea what's happening. He thinks it's a dream or some kind of vision that he's seeing. He's just simply following and doing, not fully aware. And then, as he goes outside, we see our passage. It says, When he came to himself, he said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. Here's the incredible parallel to the story here, church. Before Peter could do anything, before Peter could even imagine, say, pray, before he can even whisper an idea of how he was going to be saved, God was already rescuing him. God was already doing something before Peter even recognized it and knew it. He was being saved before he even knew he was being saved. And I believe with all my heart it's the same with the son. In those moments where he's feeding the pigs and he's so down, he's looking at himself, disgusted by himself, there had to have been a voice whispering to him, Go home, son. Go back to the father. And of course, when you're wrestling with guilt, shame, and regret, and you're living in fear, you're going to swap those things away. I can't go home. I can't do that. That's crazy. No one will ever take me back. But I believe that again and again, he would have to hear a voice saying, Go home, son. Be with your father. And eventually, eventually, he comes to himself. He becomes himself again. So he goes back to the Father. Church, likewise for us, if we're holding on to these things and we just feel like we're unworthy, believe that God is working even right now in your life. Hold on to that hope that God's doing something that you might not be seeing or experiencing now, but you will. 
you will. As the sun goes back, this is actually the main part of the story. The story so often is confused because of the title, The Lost Son. But the story is actually about the father. About this scandalous, crazy, maybe even unrealistic reaction that a father would have in that time to a son. It says that as the son is a distance away, rehearsing his lines, the father sees him and runs to him. And you have to understand, this guy is old. He's not young. He's got some bad knees. Maybe he has a cane. But he rolls up his robe, and he runs after his son. Probably really undignified. The neighbors probably see him. They're like, what's he doing? It's ridiculous. But this father doesn't care. What he cares about is his son's come home. And what does the father do? Before the son can even say anything, he says, grab a ring, grab the sandals, grab a robe, clothe my son again. This ring is so significant because it signified the family's crest. They would use this ring to seal things, the envelopes, to tell that this is part of my family, my household. And so when he puts that ring on his son's finger, he's literally sealing his son back into the family. He's saying, you're in. That's it. No one else has a say. I, the Father, bring you back in and seal you in. If you are willing, church, if we are willing to turn just a little bit, to become the way that we think God is saying to us, to bring us home, if we turn in repentance and confession, we are always met with compassion. We are always met with compassion. Finally, the last thing I'll, I'll preach on and share in this passage. In the very end of the story, the father does something even more incredible. He invites the entire village to come and celebrate. This is actually part of a three-pronged parable, a story that Jesus tells, right? The lost coin, the lost sheep, and then the lost son. And each of the three things, it follows a pattern. It's something's lost, something's found, and then there's a massive celebration. <laughs> and so in this case, again, there's a massive celebration. The father kills a calf and has this huge feast where he just invites the entire village to come. Now I want us to think about this. What is the name of your church? <laughs> That's right. Next step, community church. Community church. You do not find restoration and healing when you're alone. You do not experience the fullness of God in isolation. You only begin to truly discover healing when you're in community, when you're with other people. It's only then that you can truly see Jesus moving. You see, for the son, it wasn't just about him repenting and experiencing the compassion from his father. It's about coming back into the family, into the community that he was part of before. And if it wasn't for that final part, he'd be living the rest of his life thinking, do these people still reject me? 
Do I still have things I have to make up for? Is this compassion real? But the reality is, as they're celebrating, they all are there to celebrate Him. This unworthy person, they are there to celebrate this unworthy son. This selfishly conceited monster of a person's son who thinks he's unworthy, and yet somehow this family, this father in the village is there to celebrate him. Yes. Do you believe that's true for you? Yes. Come on, church. Do you believe that this is for you? <laughs> Does I want to encourage you? Get into community. What are you doing Thursday for Thanksgiving? If you're alone, you're feeling like, I just want to be by myself. Don't. Come to this dinner. Yes, yes. Be a part of this community. Experience what it means to be healed in that process. To be loved, to be seen, by no, be known by others. Jesus meets you in community. Jesus restores you in community. You become you when you are in community. Amen? Church, I'll close this one last thought. We sang this. If you believe, even after hearing this, that you are unworthy, that you are just unlovable, you're a lost cause, I want to break that lie right now. Because the image of the father running after his son is the image, the reality of what's happening right now, this morning, with us. Are you willing to turn? Are you willing to say, Father, I want to come home? Because if you do, church, if you do, you will be met with so much compassion.